I really can't linger that much. Yeah, let's go. Okay, okay, let's, let's, go. Go. let's go. Let's go. Let's go. Right. Oh, yeah, we can talk about Christ. this. What am I okay. here for? Okay. <laughs> I don't know. What are you here for? I mean, you got a cap on. Yeah, I'm not sure. All right, here we go. Hey, it is Glop Culture. It's uh, the second week of November. I'm John Podhortz in New York, and in Washington is Jonah Goldberg. Hi, Jonah. Hey, John. And elsewhere in New York is Rob Long. Hi, Rob. Hi, John. Hi, Jonah. How are you guys doing? I'm using my sad NPR voice. I was going to say, you sound like a sad NPR person. Yeah, I'm using my sad NPR voice. Well, I'm trying to use my cheerful AM radio voice. <laughs> that's like that's better. Unfortunately, that AM radio is dying. Look, we have so Actually, much FM to talk about. Too. I don't know if we're going to get there. We have so much Let's to talk get. about. But how are we going to get want, through all of people it? Want a sat, if people want any kind of AM voice, we have to tell them to take one of their headphones out because it's all mono, right. not stereo. That's right. true. That's true. Now, do you ever have this feeling when you're talking to somebody, um, like it, when two two people, when you're on the phone, say, and everyone's using a different kind of input. So some people are using the earbuds, and some people are using the phone, and some people are on their computer. That one person is just insanely loud. Yes. And the other people yes. are not. And you can't – you need to, like – if you're talking on the phone, you have to pull the phone away from your ear. That just happened to me. I like, find that in conversation with John without any devices. I just I know you so much that you just want to keep the phone twelve feet away from your ear, which which I which is which is and totally understandable. Now, but I, I now have a feeling that I understand why people walk. You know, people walk down the street, and the phone is like in front of them. It's like it's a piece of toast, and they're saying yeah. hi. Yes, because I don't know why, and they're just shouting into the phone. And I'm like, why are they doing that? Now I kind of now I guess I understand why. Well, you know, so the funny thing is, my understanding. You guys can correct me if I'm wrong. But my understanding is, like, the original, like, Motorola flip phone was partly designed on the communicator from Star Trek. It looked like it. Wow. I think it was. I think it was part two of the inspiration. In. Two freaking minutes in. And the, but no, my, my only point is, is, like, <laughs> now you see more and more people, even though it's not a flip phone, right. talking to their phones the way they talk to the communicator in Star Trek. They hold it in front of their chin, and they talk like that because they have people on speakerphone, and they don't want it up or, on their ear for something. Or people are looking at... Um, People are just looking at them uh, on a FaceTime or something. Uh, as you know, I, as I scroll through TikTok, which I do all the time, so I'm really connected to the youth. Uh, there's a whole TikTok live situation, and some of it is just people on their phones doing a live TikTok from work. They're just sitting there <laughs> answering the phone. There was a guy at the Starbucks drive-through. Here you go. Thanks. Have a good day. Oh yeah, it's I need like, that uh, right now. No, that last like, has two two shots. I ha- have a good day. That that's it. That's the show. It, it's like who is that uh, now? Scarred that uh, Danish novelist who writes these novels that are like you know every single thing that happens in his life or in these six novels. Then I went to the bathroom. Then I got a piece of toilet paper. Then I wiped my ass with the toilet paper. Then I left the bathroom. Then Wait, are people you are like, oh, this is a work of genius. This is this is you know, we're this is we're seeing life in its granular glory. In in psycholo- in psychology, psychologists they notice that ch- babies do that sometimes. Um, it's it's called a night mo- a crib monologue. They call it. And often babies, when they're not, not even – they don't even know how to talk yet, they, but they have the need to communicate. They go through the day, what they did that day. And I remember reading this once and thinking, oh, my God, I do that four times a week. 
I do my own little crib monologue four times a week. You know, just as I'm getting ready for bed. Yeah, and then I, I did that. I had that thing, and we had that conversation. That was good, and I wrote those notes on that thing. Got put, I, and I, I do a little monologue into myself. Does either of you keep a diary or a journal? Have you ever? No, but I wish I did. I wish me I did, too. too. So, me too. So, of course, um, I think basically we now have them in the form of email. If we yeah. were in a position where we... We were, I mean, you know, if you send out 79,000 emails, can you imagine what it would be like? But, like, if, if, if either, if any of us is in the odd position where somebody would wish to write a biography of us and, and this hey. stuff remains, they will have a kind of daily chronicle of our, of our, of our lives that is more detailed than any, uh, than any diary would ever be because there's something unconscious about email, whereas... You know, when people keep journals, they're kind of playing a role even in their journal. Um, you know, they're, right. they're, yeah. they're sort of creating a character of themselves. But uh, I, I don't know. It's just an interesting fact. You know, uh, Andrew Roberts a... told me when he wrote his Churchill biography that what he did for the first three years was he created a file in which he literally put down every single thing that Churchill did every day that he had uh, – evidence of Churchill's behavior on a day, and he had this gigantic day-by-day chronicle of Churchill's life that he compiled. And then when he sat down to write the book, it only took him eight months, even though it's like 750 pages long, because he just followed the chronology. And even then he did the last minute the night before. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I think the diaries are, like, for instance, like all three of us said, do you keep a diary? No, I, I wish I did. I want to. And why do we want to again? I mean, I, I, I want to, but I just uh, – I don't know why I – why do we – is it because we're writers or uh... – One, I think I it's a good habit. Uh-huh. Two, I think it's um probably good for your memory just uh-huh. on a day-to-day basis, right, like your right. RAM kind of memory. But also, like for me, my daughter asks me questions about my youth, and you know, so much of those memories I have just lost or mothballed and – it would be a fun sort of historical archive for family purposes. Nice. So it's not yeah. just so you can open up the book and point to a certain date and certainly go, see, you did this to me on Thursday. That too. I think that would be an ideal thing. But I, I do know, like, I know uh, writers who, um, you know, who, who are like serious diarists. Joseph Epstein yeah. is like a serious journal, you know, journal David keeper. It's says book. And it, and it, it, you know, it, it creates a kind of record of your life, and yeah, it's, and, and so, I don't know, I mean, Tom, maybe uh, maybe one does it anyway, you know, in a weird oh, yeah. way, as I say, sort of in email or in personal, the fact that we are, we spend so much time radically communicating with each other and have really for the last 20 odd years that it... I also just wish I kept notes, like I read yeah. things and I'm like... This would be a great thing to write about one day, or I should really save this anecdote. I do that now. Because it'll be useful. And I, I just yeah. – I, I don't have that kind of discipline because I used to have a really great memory, and so I could make a mental note, and now I can't the same way. Why? What happened? I got old. Oh, I'm not as old as you, but I got no, old. not as old as me. Wait, what are we talking about? Uh, uh, I would say <laughs> – uh, Thomas Mallon wrote a great book called uh, – I think it was his first book called A Book of One's Own. 
and about diaries and people and diarists and what he he discovered is what John said, which is that nobody's writing a diary for posterity. You're like, oh, I'm just writing it, and I go, I'll just burn it. No, they're writing it because they were creating a character of the life that they lived themselves. And I I have a bunch of like diary apps that I, I assemble and and try, and um, one of them follows me around, and so it, it does kind of create this like weird check in. <laughs> thing like, i guess i did go to that like coffee place on thursday i guess i did go oh i already went to the tailor because i have it here um but it doesn't it all seems that when i'm writing it i'm like well what am i doing here like i'm it, like I, I could just sit and listen and think why would i write it down it seems like it's work uh at, but on the other hand this is i would pitch this to i know we have a lot of very important uh venture uh, financiers listening because our audience is very elegant and very um upscale I think you should be able to uh, put an app on your uh, computer and all of your devices that assembles all your documents and uh, calendar items and everything by date. David Galernter created – this was his idea for organization of information in the computer age, and he sued – I think it was Apple – Claiming essentially that Apple's time machine was was an act of theft, that 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 he had conceived of this thing, which he called a time stream, and that and that the organization of all computer information should be by date, and should, and therefore your entire life would be kind of collated in this fashion. Mm-hmm. And um, he won. I mean, there was a there was a huge settlement. It took 15 <laughs> years, but there was a huge settlement with Apple. Um, because rather than rather than storing by subject or by different app or things in different apps, this idea was that you would cross all programs and cross everything, and everything would be would be categorized um, in a in a in a timeline. And you well, could that I, timeline I, I, could be much, in reverse, or yeah. you know, could be from today backward, or from the beginning of the file keeping to the but present. But pretty much everything I have. Uh, every file I have, everything I do online has a date tag on it. Right. And they're trying to train you on these note-taking and diary apps to tag things with your own specific tags. Like I have a note uh, 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 app that I really love called Bear Notes, B-E-A-R Notes. And um, you can tag a million different things. You can sort them any, any way you want, and you, all the tags sort of like stay the same, and you can you can text things into it. If you just have an idea, you just text it, and it just appears. And I have another one called Mem, and I keep them separate uh, for different stuff. Um, but, yeah, they, they, they already do that. But I, I would just like to be able to say, okay, you know, 2011, just give me a scrapbook for 2011. problem is that there's so much crap on your computer. There's, like, files you don't even know what they are. One of the one of the wonderful actually features of Facebook, not that anyone ever says anything about Facebook is wonderful anymore, but um, if you've been a Facebook user since Facebook started, you log in on a day and it says, "Oh, here are your memories from today, like November eighth is the day we're taping." And like, uh, if you're like me and you put up a lot of pictures of your kids, or you know, like you you put up a joke, or like you you ran a, you linked to a piece you wrote that day. 14 years later, you know, or so, you know, 12 years later, this picture will come up you haven't seen since you put it up of your child as a baby, for example, and you go, oh, my God, it's so good. Or, or a column that I wrote of which I have right. absolutely no memory. And it is 
entrancing. I guess that is what 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 diarists get. Like they flip through their diary, they go back, you know, twenty five years or something like that, and they're like, "Oh my God, I completely I don't even remember that I was in, you know, you know, the Caribbean that week, and 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 look what I did. I, I yeah. no, don't even remember." And so you sort of get this summary of your life back to you it's it's nice and and it is there is something like useful about it in some sense of course if you're a narcissist it is the ultimate in all never leave the glory house. you know right. just to live and just read through your own life look what i said yeah. oh my god that was great yeah. look at that great thing now, i wrote uh, part of the and i i don't want to bore you again although you know, listen, I, I, I suspect we'll be talking about Dune at some point. So just consider this my, <laughs> my, my credit. Uh, if you uh, if you if you uh, if you uh, if you do psychedelic drugs every now and then, um, like people do in Dune, like some people do in Dune, right? What Dune's about? There you go. Yeah. Um, you uh, you do, especially MDMA was which is psychoactive, really. Um, it's one of the more specific ones where. You do have a lot of memories. Like it can be really, really, really rough on people who have had these traumatic things get buried. Um, but what's the, the other side of it is the amazing thing is it's sort of like when you you know empty out your your attic or your your hoarder or your garage and you put everything out on the front lawn, and you look at it all and you say, um, you know, what was I keeping this for? What was I carrying this around for? So it's like a logic say, why am I carrying this around? This moment that seems to be echoing in my brain that is really not very meaningful but still has an effect, a bad effect on me. But the other side of it is you you look at the stuff, you go, oh, my God, look at that. I forgot all about how great that was. And I have a feeling that's true, I think, if you're a true diarist, like you are forced to go back every now and then and actually relive and think, oh, you know, actually, wasn't that bad? You know, so what's, what's sort of sad or melancholy about this is that so there used well, to we're be going to die for one thing. Well, there's that, but no, there's this whole. There used to be this entire industry designed around making small things that that were physical, that represented memories. My parents collected swizzle sticks from famous bars they'd been to around the world. People collected matchbooks, stamps. Um, I've gone through my dad's stuff, and he's got you know. Paperweights and weird, like, special coins. You know, the military oh, still wow. does that, where they give you those coins kind of thing. That stuff is really cool, and that was supposed to, like, remind you of memories. Now it's all ones and zeros. It's either photos yeah. or text mm -hmm. stuff. And I, I kind of miss the physical doohickeys. Like, I, I think about, like, the stuff from places I've been and things I've done, like, when my daughter starts going through my stuff and, you know, decades from now or whatever. It's just not as cool as like all the weird stuff that my dad and my mom had collected from physically going places and taking physical mementos of some kind. Okay, so I have an interesting regret. It's not. I mean, it's not something that I did, but but because there are things in your life, not that you did, but that but that but that happened that you were around or 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 experiences that you had that you were not the originator of. And what I'm thinking of particularly is I had a file. So uh, I got my I, I'm I'm on my I'm in my second marriage. So my second marriage is now 19 years long, and my first marriage was a year long. But I so I got married for the first time at 36. So you're saying you're due? No, I'm not. I'm, <laughs> I'm saying no such thing. I'm saying absolutely no such thing. I'm very happily married, and I was not happily married the first time. But anyway, um, 
when my first wife and I got together, I, I had been, you know, dating for, you know, seriously for 15 years or something like that. And I had a file in my filing cabinet called Letters from Women. And it was letters that I got often after a breakup or something, you know, accusatory angry letters or whatever. <laughs> but I just sort of stuffed them into this you file. I'm not, a particularly, good I'm, not, I'm not a particularly good filer. Yeah. At some point, but I these are things, and at some point, I got myself all straightened up, and I had this file, and I would love to look at that file, like I would love to read that file. But my first wife destroyed all the letters. <laughs> One day, I was at work, and I came home, and she said, "I found this file, and I burned it." And so those letters are now gone from it. Like I said, you really that wasn't really you your right to do that. But I mean, but I mean that. But I, I use that as an example only because what it would interest me about that is not right. what I said, but what was said to me that I have no <laughs> memory of. I, and wh- I what, would and what, love to read those. Wouldn't you see? That'd be a great theater piece. I was going to say, it's reading kind of. Someone else reading letters that were sent to you. Someone else read. Here's here's what it like. It's like yeah. the, it's like a. It's not the vagina monologues, but it's not not the vagina monologues, if you know what I mean. Yeah. Someone no, reads like the letters. It's like the scene in, right. It's like the, the yeah. scene in Four Weddings. Yeah. yeah. But it's like the scene in Four Weddings from a Funeral when Hugh Grant ends up at the table with the six women, each of whom he has broken up with. Yeah. And they Goodbye start pod. telling stories about him. Like that, that's what uh, that's what I think would, would, would be amusing. But that's why I think there's something very, there is something ultimately narcissistic about being like a, comp- a compulsive diary. Sure. Or, or journal, that that is that is you know allayed by the fact that what you would really be doing is revisiting your past as it was seen by others who might even have kind of a very critical view of your uh, of your experience. You don't write and, that part. You don't write that. Part. I know. Well, but that that is remind me. Course, I have a story about Stephen Cannell. I'll tell you the story about. Stephen okay, I want to hear the story of Stephen Cannell. But before that, I want to just tell you guys that the end of the year starts now. It's a mad dash to the new year, and while most people call it the holiday season, Tommy John wants you to know it's also softness season. Go hard on the to-do list, but try to go easy on yourself, and you can do that by starting with a new pair of Tommy John men's underwear. When you start your day wearing Tommy John, you're that much more comfortable, so you can do everything better. Tommy John men's underwear has breathable, lightweight, moisture-wicking fabric with four times the stretch of competing brands, and you'll feel the same level of comfort layering their luxuriously soft loungewear right on top. They're so comfortable and good-looking, you can and you will be wearing them anywhere. That's why Tommy John doesn't have customers. They have fanatics. Plus, it's all backed by Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Get 20% off your first order right now at TommyJohn.com slash glop. That's TommyJohn.com slash glop for 20% off. TommyJohn.com slash glop. See site for details. And we thank Tommy John for sponsoring the glop podcast. Okay, tell us the story about Stephen Camel. So, uh, friends, uh, this is this all happened before 2016, just to set the stage. So this is before immigration was like a, a thing. Um, and they wanted to do a, 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 a basically Baywatch, a slightly lighter Baywatch set at the border. So kind of funny border police show um, with Baywatch, kind of Baywatch style. Um, and so there was really funny border pitch, patrolmen but... on horses in bikinis. Kind of, yeah. Whipping, um, whipping, whipping. Well, uh, that, you know, I, I tell you, this, 
This is before that was all the the, the big bugaboo, <laughs> the as they say. Yeah. The whole okay, uh, media firestorm. Yeah. Um, so they uh, they pitched it. It was a really funny pitch, actually. And um, and they went and they you know, Stephen Cannell was a big deal and he had a deal but a bunch of places and they pitched it. And the person listening to the pitch said, "This is great. I'm just wondering about the border setting." <laughs> Um, like the because the Mexican border, it just feels like there's just a lot of sadness there, and a lot of like um, crime and like uh, uh, drug gang decapitations, and families just being ripped apart and exploited and raped. And Cannell said, "Yeah, yeah, yeah, yeah. We're not going to write that part." <laughs> but see, that was the genius you, you of Baywatch. Don't have to write that part. They're going to force you to write that yeah. part. You got to write the other part. Yeah. The genius of Baywatch was this idea that there were these, like, cops and, you know, dramatic lifeguard, you know, like in an yeah. area that everybody that everybody knows is just like people are there to have fun and go and splash the water and suntan. And it's like there's drugs at the beach or, you know, like, yeah. oh, my God, there's a kid drowning in two feet of water. Let Parker Stevenson run into the water with his red buoy thing and save the kid. They're barely... Literally, they barely go into the water. They barely go yeah, into the water. But you can watch it on mute and get about ninety percent of the value of the show. <laughs> yeah, the people right. Yeah, you can. It, it, yeah. What, what's interesting about it was that you uh, went before Baywatch. I was living right there, and it, 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 the the lifeguards are all kind of older, kind of craggly. Used to former firemen, um, uh, and and I have to say, honestly. Uh, the ones that I encountered in my neighborhood were just at the, like, local bar. Super racist, in a sense. They really were. They were like, let me tell you something. These guys come from Mexico, from the far from south, and they just they come and they swim, and they don't know. They don't swim in your jeans. They swim in their jeans, which are really heavy, and they swim by the, the pier pylons, and, of course, the current is really strong. They get knocked against the pylons, and they just sink like stones. <laughs> I'm like, okay, I don't, I don't know how to respond to that. Um, but like, so, but, but after Baywatch, like everyone's like, oh shit, I better like, uh, I gotta start working out. I gotta like look good. Like, a, a, everybody got better. Like, TV made everybody better in real life. So, so I was we, 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 hold on one second. We should right. tell listeners for those who don't know who. First of all, I always thought it was Canal, but I, what do I know? Clearly, you would know. Um, I went I, I, while you were talking, um, as I often do. I surfed the web. <laughs> And um, I looked up his selected filmography, hmm. and like, I think I am – I've proven my chops that I know a little bit and have a memory of a lot of TV shows. It is – first yes. of all, it is amazing, amazing the number of shows that's, that he's sure. created. Um, I mean, the big ones, obviously, he created or co-created, Rockford Files and sure. Beretta, um, Baba Black Sheep. Uh, Ten Speed and Brown Shoe. Hardcastle and McCormick. Booker. Um, but, like, the the thing that kind of impresses me the most is how many things he created or co-created I have never freaking heard of. Um, I mean, The Rousters. Um, uh, I don't remember Switch or, I mean, obviously, who does? Switch was, uh, was Eddie Albert and uh, Robert Wagner. Broken Badges. That um, uh, the hun- and some of these are movies, I guess. The Hundred Lives of Blackjack Savage. 
<laughs> I think that's commish. a dead pilot. That was like a that was like yeah. a yeah. Caesar's challenge was apparently two years. You know, well, traps. You got to try stuff. Yeah, but well, like it's impressive that he had that many failures, and people are like, yeah, thing. well, let's just let's hire him but for nothing else. One of the things he did, he he made so much money that he um he bought uh local television stations around the country. He was a station owner. A lot like Norman Lear, like that's what Norman Lear did, and and that is that, that's where they sort of hit the billion dollar you know club, right? Stephen J. Cannell just wasn't a TV producer; he was a TV mogul. So when uh, Paramount and and, the, and the, oddly, this is like this crazy fever dream of the mid '90s when Paramount and the Paramount Communications and Chris Craft um, decided to start a, 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 a network. The they boat needed, people, or is that what thing? Yeah, the boat people, because they also wow. have stations. Everybody's buying stations. Um, they they made a deal. They had to de- make a deal, affiliate deal with Chris Craft and Stephen J. Cannell to get clear, with the, you know, clearance on those uh, on their low power, on their, some of them low power local stations. And Stephen J. Cannell said, "Sure, but I give me, I want some shows." And so he he and like this, oh, by the way, he he always looked the same. This guy was like like uh uh um. Dapper 1978. He was the guy <laughs> with the kind of the – he looked like Lyle Wagner. He had a goatee forever, and he had this kind of helmet of hair that was probably his, and he was he wore tight blue jeans and cowboy boots. The blue jeans were always like iron, like it had a crease in them. He was, he was that guy, the crease people, jeans. People might, might remember what Stephen Cannell looked like because his logo yeah, right. was him typing – on a right. typewriter, and then with a great flourish, pulling the paper out <laughs> of the typewriter and flinging it in the air, and then it turned into a C for Cannell. Right. And I, I, here's what's interesting. It's funny that you brought this up because I was listening to a conversation on a podcast with David Chase, the creator of The Sopranos, talking about The Many Saints of Newark, his terrible movie version of Not The Sopranos. Good. Not good. And uh, David Chase is a miserable human being. I mean, he basically says he's a miserable human being. Here's this guy. He is the most, you know, critically acclaimed sure. TV creator of the last 30 years, created a show that people say is the greatest thing on television. He's sour. He's unpleasant. He's full of complaints. He's always talking about this one and that one. And and uh, it's funny because Stephen Cannell, uh, as he did with, Many, 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 many people. Stephen Cannell was his entry into show business. He ended up writing for the yeah. Rockford Files. He won his first Emmy for writing for the Rockford Files. And Stephen Cannell loved TV. And then he wrote some mystery novels uh, to, you know, like entertain himself. But he loved TV. He was very unpretentious. He made these, you know, buddy shows and fun. it was all that fun yeah. and all of this. And then there was like David Chase. And David Chase, and so Stephen Cannell had this like, immensely fun, fun-packed life, and he mentored hundreds of people and everybody in television over the last three years and sometimes connected to Stephen Cannell. And he was... And there's David Chase, and David Chase is like, I hate television. I never wanted to work for television. <laughs> television sucks. <laughs> I, all I wanted to do is I was hoping that HBO would reject The Sopranos so I could add, I could buy it back from them and add 20 minutes, and it could premiere at Cannes, and then they took it. And then they ran it, and then it had to be a series. And then, you know, we, the series came on, and everybody praised it from the first go. And then we were on the air for nine years. And, and like, but all I wanted to do was make movies. 
And then I made a movie called Not Fed Away. And, you know, they, 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 they mishandled the release. So then I had to make another Sopranos movie. And it's like, you know what? Piss off. <laughs> You're whining and complaining. You know, I love The Sopranos, but you were a jerk, and the movie you made yeah. was lousy. Why don't you just go right off into the sunset? Well, we don't know. How, what, how do you handle people? That's the thing. We, we, we used to be fine with that. We didn't know anything about David Chase. All we did was watch The Sopranos, but yeah. now we know so much about everybody. We don't even, you know, how do you, I mean, how do you handle the, mm -hmm. the people who did great stuff? Who like I don't know did the Sopranos or wrote the Constitution? Who may also have like had other issues going on? Yeah, can I tell you a story about Andy? so Andy Borowitz, who people know because they think he's a terrible humorist and he writes these leftist, uh, you know, things for the New Yorker that everybody says is terrible and makes fun of. But you know, he was one of the original guys who did funny stuff with funny headlines on the internet, and particularly in the late '90s and early 2000s, his stuff was really funny. I think. I mean, he may have gotten less funny over time, but he kind of what the onion is, or what, like he was one of the inventors of, and, and, and Andy Borowitz had been uh, a TV writer, and he was, in fact, the showrunner of The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. But he had come up working for somebody named Gary David Goldberg, sure. most famous for writing Family Ties, uh, for producing Family Ties. And Andy and his then-wife Susan worked on Family Ties. Then they started a show about a daycare center with Julia Louis-Dreyfus on it called Day by Day. And then they hit it with Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, right, which made him rich forever and meant he could, like, leave television and then do what he wanted to do, move to New York and do what he wants to do. Okay. So he once told me this story about Gary David Goldberg. He said, you know, I'm basically like a, a cheerful person. Andy said, I'm a cheerful person. And, and you know, I like sunny. Like, I like life. And I'm going through it, you know. Mm -hmm. And my shows fail. They succeed. Whatever life goes on. And I'm, yeah. and he's like, but Gary David Goldberg was so miserable. Like he was so, he yeah. made all this money and he had this huge success and he kept moving from house to house. And like every day of his life, he was just like dragging his ass from morning yeah. till night and everything was dark, complected and lousy and all this. And it's just sort of interesting, you know, because yeah. it's like one of those things about how Money doesn't buy you happiness, and success doesn't buy. You. If you're a kind of person <laughs> yeah, if you're that person. nothing can satisfy, really, you think, well, what, 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 what trouble? What kind of what, what trouble could there be for yeah, somebody like Gary David? Yeah, like he's rich, Steve, he's famous, he's yeah. successful. He can Steve do whatever Cannell he wants. Woke to. up every morning and put on his creased blue jeans and <sighs> sprayed his hair in place and like went out and met the day. Yeah. Um, it was always jeans and a blue blazer. Like he was that guy, jeans, yeah. blue blazer, uh, um, cowboy boots. It's, it's actually a really, it's a pretty incredible look if you're consistent about it. But I, I actually, I remember there was, I don't know if it's Gary, David, I think it was Gary David Goldberg, um, some late rewrite, and they were just like dithered and dithered and dithered over like I don't know, like two, four, ten lines, nothing, nothing, like nothing, and that Gary was would not let them go, like it dithered and dithered and dithered, and finally someone said, Gary, Gary, we want to go home, <laughs> and he said. Uh, yeah, but I don't want to go home. <laughs> and that that was all you need to know. It's like, oh, he, these guys, a lot of them don't want to go home. They don't like yeah. it at home. They like it there. That's their living room. And they treat it like their living room. And so yeah. they don't want to they don't want to go. They don't want to go. That's also true. I mean, we don't I think maybe we talked about this before, so we don't have to get into it, but the number of people who travel in art and in the pundit, public intellectual, whatever, yeah. writer world. Who are constantly on the road? A really sizable number of them mm -hmm. do it 
because they just don't want to be home with their families yeah. <laughs> uh, under any circumstances. And I'm not going to embarrass don't know their people, families. But... Maybe you would want to be well, home can with I, them I'll tell you a story. Alan Bloom, I was a student of Alan Bloom's at the University of Chicago, and there was another professor in the political science department whom I won't name. And he once said to me, Blue, who was a very flamboyant, he said, have you, have, you, have you ever taken a course from Ralph? And I said, no, because he teaches at 8.30 in the morning, and I, I can't get up that early. And he was like, well, that's why Ralph does it. You see, he always teaches at 8.30 in the morning so he can leave the house before his children wake up. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, no, I can't, I can't get the kids ready for school because I have to go teach. I don't want to have those magical mornings with my children. Wow. I, uh, and all, those of us with children uh, can sort of understand that at certain deep points in your life. It's like, man, if I could just, uh, if I could just, you know, like say, no, no, I'm sorry. <laughs> I know. I mean, look, I mean, I, yeah. I, and I'm not, I'm not hard and fast about this. I mean, like, yeah. I get it. But like one of the reasons there's a huge amount of, you know, social science on this is that men become wildly more productive after they have kids. And I think one of the reasons why is work is one of the few excuses men can give to their wives for not dealing with the freaking craziness of, of raising kids. You know, it's like, honey, I'm providing for the family. I'm not being selfish. I'm not like going to the, go play golf. I'm going to go write this book or I'm going to go, yeah. you know, whatever. And, 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 and some of that's a very noble thing, right? I mean, you also have this yeah, drive, right. like, oh my God, I'm an adult now. I got to take care of some, some things, but it's, it's, some of the other part too. I remember well uh, early in my career, not that early, but like early enough that some, we were sitting around having lunch or something, and I just wasn't paying that much attention to the conversation. I guess I've gotten deep at some point, and someone said, "Hey, so Rob, what is your career goal?" And I kind of looked up from my turkey wrap and said, "It's to go home." <laughs> and I, I thought. Everybody sort of laughed like it was a joke, but I really wasn't a joke. It was like you, if you, you know, so you wake somebody up and you ask them a question, they're going to give you the truthful answer. That was the truthful answer. My career goal is to go home. I don't want to be here longer than I need to be. I once went. Uh, I once uh, was taken out for a drink uh, by uh, an editor of a book that I had praised, and she said to me, "Can we? I, I re I'm really so thrilled that you wrote such a wonderful review of this book." And she had gone to high school with my sister, so she was like, let's, let's go. I want to meet you. Let's go have a drink. So I went to have a drink with her. It was like 5.30 uh, in the afternoon. So I'm, you know, bar and bed. This is like 30 years ago. And uh, we're drinking. I said, do you have, you know, married? you have kids? She said, yeah, yeah I've, 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 I have three kids. And I said, how old are they? And she said, they're like, you know, eight, six, and two or something like that. And I said, well, don't, don't, you, don't you have to get home? And she was like, oh, God, no. <laughs> so, like, she was with me having a drink, which was an unnecessary thing for her to do, really, as a means of extending, yeah. you know, the childcare time. It's like, no, I can't be home to, you know, feed dinner because I got to, I have to go out for a drink with this guy who wrote a review of of, of the novel that I just published. So that I can come up with some excuse why I don't have to be home with my kids. See, my mom, my mom Kobayashi Maru'd this stuff. Like yeah. she once, she tells a story about how she once had to interview George Papard at Sardi's, and she checked my brother at the coat check at Sardi's, <laughs> <laughs> uh, and the coat check girl loved it, and you know she tipped my mom tipped her well, and if anything went wrong, she could just get up from the table and go check on the baby. Um, but you know that's how you do it. That's how you that's, do it. That, 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 is, that is pretty impressive. And you know how else you do it? You sit in the next chair. 
That's oh. another way you do it. Is you sit in the next chair. You have it done, yeah. You have it done because you know when you sit in the next chair, your body says, "Oh, so this is what a real office chair is supposed to feel like." People never actually look forward to sitting in their office. Now that they get the X chair, and they are thrilled. Like, can your current office chair give you a massage while you're working? My X chair can. Can your current office chair heat up or cool down? My X chair can. It's all in the LMX massage and temperature regulation, exclusively designed and made for X chair. And let me tell you about that dynamic dynamic variable lumbar support, or DVL. That's the thing that you can move up and down to support your lower back. And, it, man, it is fantastic. Your back will never be happy in any other chair again. High performance, quality engineering, extreme comfort. These are all the reasons people love their X chair. So take my advice. Try the X chair yourself risk-free for 30 days. Once you realize how much better your chair should be, You'll never go back. Go to xchairglop.com now. That's the letter X, the word chair, glop, G-L-O-P, dot com, or call 1-844-4X-CHAIR for $100 off your order. X-CHAIR has a 30-day guarantee of complete comfort, and you can finance your purchase for as little as $30 a month. xchairglop.com, and we thank X-CHAIR for sponsoring the Glop podcast. Um, all right, so we, we need to do a little rank cultural punditry. As Jonah would say, sure. rank cultural punditry. RCP. Jonah liked Dune, and I didn't really like Dune. I mean, I thought I thought it was fine, uh, but um, uh, I would be interested, Rob. I know you probably haven't seen it, and you haven't read the novel. So Jonah's read the novel. I've read the novel. I loved the novel as a teenager. I still, I've not really read or heard anybody talk about it who really hadn't re hasn't read the novel. And I think that if you hadn't read the novel, you would have no clue what mm -hmm. on earth was going on. I mean, you would follow yeah. linearly a plot about a kid and his mother, and he's part of a royal family, and the royal family gets ambushed. That's about it. But, like, all the, inner, all the things that make, that actually make the novel thrilling kind right. of a uh, book of political intrigue and palace palace intrigue right. uh, and stuff like that. Okay, so you didn't see it, right? Well, here's here I can I just say why? I mean, I, I think I mean, we all know why, but another, an additional reason why. I went online to the YouTube uh service and I I, I, I just typed in Dune because people were talking about the old new one which I didn't see the old one either. Uh and so I looked at the I just said oh, this is a short little clip of the new one, of the old one. And it was a little baby in a little cloak, just looking up, and it was raining, I guess, and saying, but how can this be? Because he is the Quiznach Hadarak. And then there was a thunder <laughs> so thing, have, and I thought, yeah, here's what so I thought. Here's, here's really it. what I thought. I'm if you out. have read it, you big liar. You would only remember Quiznach Hadarak if you'd read the book. You're a big, you're a big phony. <laughs> no, I'm really you're a dude just, reader. That is not true. <laughs> I went on the YouTube, and I saw that. How can this be? The little baby, how can this be? He is the Quiznach Hadarak. That character is not in this movie. So just to be fair, that's 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 part is two. The little baby that hasn't in the book? been made yet. The, the little, little baby, baby is in, in the, the book. Okay. The little baby is in the book. The little baby achieves full human and adult consciousness in the womb uh, as a result of, 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 of her mother's ingestion of the miracle hallucinogenic spice that runs the universe in Dune. But she is not in part one. That's a, I think Rob was quoting from David Lynch one. From the David yeah, Lynch the first one. one. Yes. That's what yes. I saw. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, yes. I so, saw the first one. I just want to tell a quick story. I saw the first one at the Motion Picture Association of America screening room in 1984 in Washington. When I was at first moved to Washington, was working at the Washington Times. 
And I love Dune, and I like David Lynch, and uh, we were all sitting there very excited about it. And then there is this moment when, you know, in David Lynch movies, everybody whispers. There's a lot of whispering. Mm-hmm. People are always talking like this. And there's like... So yeah, in this, so um, there's this moment. It's like a Joe Biden speech. There's this moment when uh, our lead female character, Lady Jessica, is walking around this palace, and uh, she's startled by someone. She turns around, and there's Linda Hunt, like little Linda Hunt. Well, that Linda was Hunt she, that, says, is Linda Pled, Is that the baby? No, no. <laughs> she, could, she could have been, but she's not. And so and so she says, "Who are you?" And then Linda Hunt says. I'm Linda Hunt. I, I am the shutout mapes. I am the housekeeper. <laughs> and the entire theater Young erupted into giggles because of the effort to make the word housekeeper into something ominous. It's like, I am the garbage man. <laughs> you know, like that. I anyway. Anyway. So so that was yeah, when I, you really knew. Even though there's some brilliant imagery in the David Lynch. Yeah, yeah, look, I, mean, I, I liked it, and I'm going to defend liking it, but I don't need to defend it here. Um, I do think, the more I've thought about it, like, the smart play would have been, you know, look, Game of Thrones, massive friggin' success, despite what Rob says. Um, and unlike Game, unlike Game of Thrones, the entire series, at least the entire series that matters, has been written. HBO should have grabbed Dune and done it as like a seven series, seven season yeah. series where you really can spend an enormous amount of time explaining stuff. No no one who loved Dune right. would object to the gratuitous insertion of more nudity into the HBO <laughs> version of it. Especially um, the hot baby. Especially, especially when you're especially when you're on the spice. Yeah, I mean like there's, yeah. there's so much room to like play with it and uh, you know, they could have had, you know, the first three episodes could have been them just still on Caladan, and people would have Oh, that would be great. It. I could see, the, I could see the, uh, the, the, the talk shows. They would have the guest, you know, it's like, and, and Mark Wahlberg, you're, you're, gonna, you're playing the Quiznatch Hatterack. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. It's a really interesting part because, like, the Quiznatch, he's, like, kind of a hero, but he's also kind of an antihero. Like, you don't know. Some, you... So the central conceit of Doom is that a 14-year-old boy is the savior of the universe. Right, that that is the central oh, conceit. No, but it's important because it is it is the it is at the core and root of science fiction that uh, a teenage that a boy that a fourteen year old boy is, is going to buy hinge, the book is the yeah. hinge figure right. in all of recorded history. That is well, that, the fantasy. That is the that's because the that golden age of science right? fiction is sixteen. That's yeah, also, right? I mean, if, so. that's also yeah, world literature often has that. I mean, how old was Gilgamesh? You know. Well, that's true, but I'm just right. So, so in, in essence, that was middle yeah, age when Gilgamesh was written. Yeah, <laughs> yeah he was an old man at 14. So Timothy Chalamet he played a very like 20, young Quiznatch Hatterrect. Timothy Timothy you know Chalamet who plays Paul is like 25 years old. Like it. So so the the whole notion that this like barely out of you know barely out of childhood person is advancing leaps and bounds in terms of consciousness, knowledge, power, and, you know, threat and danger, which I think is the thing that makes it a powerful and elemental story, is completely missing from this movie because he's a because young you adult. Think that, you think, and you believe that Timothy Chalamet looks like a young – I think he looks 13 to me. 
He not only looks 13, he looks like he has reached the educational level of a 13-year-old. But like an here's eighth the thing grade, I want to like, ask. You know what? So Jonah liked it. I want to really talk deep. I like. I, I. I don't want to bore everybody. But here's my thing. So I listened to Jonah's Dispatch <laughs> podcast. An hour of him, Haley Bird, Wilt, David French, and Jack Butler talking about Dune. And um, and that was almost and you're as going though to, you're going to top that now. We're going to try and top that. No, but it was almost as though you could tell. Not that you, this is actually true of you, Jonah, but of they all wanted to like it and so they liked it like first of all david wants to like everything and likes yeah it i mean david loved aquaman so that's not dispositive right but i mean they wanted to like it so they liked it and i wanted to like it and i and i thought it was okay and then as, as, as i say sort of tried to put myself in mind of somebody who didn't know what the story was going in and my i figured nah like sorry you know or, or, or what they would understand of it was the least interesting aspects of it. The interesting aspects I, I, of it are the intrigue. But I, I cannot fault somebody for um, disliking it if they've never read the book. I mean, I just you can't because like so much of the stuff doesn't. Why are they using swords and knives? Yeah, you know, yeah. there's so many things they left out yeah. that assumed knowledge on the part of the audience that. Um, you got to let it either like wash over you, which I think some people probably do. Yeah. Or but I have to, yeah. you're like, this is wasting my time. But, but that guy's there's something fi- interesting about like a director, or really anything, right? Where you are so deep into it that you are willing to risk the fact that if people see this moment, they're gonna laugh, right? That you're it's not as a joke. But you're filming a movie where Linda Hunt says housekeeper. But that right. And then David, like, you're like, okay, well, look, some people are going to find that hilarious, and 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 some people are going to be really into it. But I'm still going to do it. I think there's something I don't know. There's something, like David. But, I, mean, I told you my my Elephant Man story, right? Speaking of David Lynch, my friend Tom destroyed the premiere, the, the one of the early uh, screenings of the Elephant Man, the Elephant Man, another David Lynch movie. Right? It's David Lynch. Yeah, David Lynch. Um, David black Lynch and white, is... elephant man, horribly misshapen, sores and big bulbs, thing, everything. Oh, disgusting, right? He wears a sack on his head and because uh, people can't stand him. But he, he's rescued by Anthony Hopkins from this freak show, and he's brought, and he's like he's become famous, and he's going to go meet the queen. They're going to be the elephant man to meet Queen Victoria. And they get him all dressed up, and he's in white tie, and he's going to meet the queen. And it's an incredibly moving moment because he's there's the elephant man. He's going to meet the queen and without the bag on his head. And there he is looking at himself in the mirror, and he's got his eyes all weird, and his hair's like big old bulby things, and it's drooling. It's monstrous, right? And he looks, and he turns to Anthony Hopkins, who's preparing him, and he says to Anthony Hopkins, and I, elephant man, you know, he talks, he says, how do I look? And there's this quiet <laughs> moment in the movie, and it's like it's super heartbreaking. And my friend Tom calls out from a darkened theater, "Truth." <laughs> That's and everybody bad. starts to laugh. That's bad, and the moment is ruined. Bad so I, I may have told this story before, but my dad went to go see a screening of it with my mom, and like <laughs> Pod, Pod knew my dad. Like my dad. I think it's fair to say is not high on the list of people who shout out things at movie theaters, <laughs> and um, and uh, and so spoiler alert. But you know, look, the movie came out thirty years ago, whatever. Forty years ago. Forty years ago. Yeah. The way Elephant Man dies at the end of the movie 
is he has this very long and protracted thing because of his condition. It's all tragic. The whole movie is like, super tragic. Like it's Element is very high on the list of movies that you need to watch, but no one wants to watch twice. Um, it's up there with Schindler's List in that regard. But the at the end of the movie, he decides to kill himself, and because of his condition, he's never been able to sleep on his back, right? And so he has this, this long drawn yeah. out thing where he takes out the pillows and he lies flat on his back and he die and and he's going to die as asphyxia, and it's long and drawn out. I wasn't in the theater, but my mom told me this. My dad never mentioned it. And the audience is waiting, and they know what's coming, whatever. And finally, leans back to, to, to say goodbye to this cool world. And my dad says way too loud, damn, I forgot to brush my teeth. <laughs> oh, man. Oh. And then everyone's like, oh, no, he's going to get up. You know, but anyway, so. <laughs> oh, that really is a beautiful. Yeah. That is a is a it is a beautiful movie, beautiful and movie. this it is, is yeah. a crazy inspiration. Yeah, that yeah. Mel Brooks um, of all people had to hire it, right? David Lynch, who had only yeah. made Eraserhead, a midnight movie that is a movie about uh, speaking interesting parental anxiety. It is the great, horrible, brilliant portrait of 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 parental anxiety so deranged that it's all about the fear that you're going to end up having a baby and the baby is going to be this kind of monster creature who will never sleep um it's 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 extraordinary when he is at his best david lynch is yeah. extraordinary can, can i tell one story yeah. one more audience story that is, is maybe apocryphal but I, i'm pretty sure it's not First season of Friends, as you remember, Friends was shot, uh, you know, in front of a studio audience. Friends was a TV show about young 20-somethings in New York City hanging out. And at one point, Courtney Cox, who was sort of the sort of the the, 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 the most famous person in the cast at that time, um, she had a line. She had to get up. And she said, I, yeah, I got to go to bed. Um, and then she went up. She forgot the line. And she forgot the line. She forgot, I got to go to bed. She stood up, you know, to all the, the friends were there. Um, and, uh, and then she turns and so his joke and she says to like, wait, wait, why do I have to go to bed again? And someone from the audience called out because you're actually 40. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. Okay. I will tell you the single greatest story and it, it involves Mort Saul who just died last week. Oh, he was, and great, you know, man. there is a, an obit of Mort Saul in the New York times. I know we're not supposed to say anything nice about the New York times, but Bruce Weber That's wrote it. One. He must've written it years ago. And it is one of the best pieces of journalism you will ever read. Bruce Weber's uh, obituary of Mort Saul. Anyway, the great Mort Saul story is an audience story. Uh, it's 1960. And a movie has been made of the book Exodus by Leon Uris about the founding of the state of Israel. And Otto Preminger directs the movie. And the movie is three and a half hours long. So it's three and a half hours long. So you get to like hour three. And at this point, Paul Newman, who is the here heroic, you know, young Zionist hero, is like fighting against the Arabs and against the British and this and that. And there's scenes and oh, oh, oh. And it's on, going on and on forever. And Lee, Rem, Lee, uh, the, Eva Marie Saint is crying, and Peter Lawford is an evil British guy. It's going on, and in the middle of the premiere, I guess at like the Cinerama Dome or something like that in in, in L.A. or Grauman's Chinese or wherever, Mort Saul stands up among three thousand people in the audience, and he says, <laughs> "Otto, let my people go." <laughs> That is the greatest audience is, story. Yeah. And with that, let me talk to you about Donors Trust. 
The Economist recently reported American philanthropy is going woke and predominantly funding liberal causes. Do you want to help counterbalance this liberal influence? If so, consider listening to Giving Ventures, a new podcast. It'll give you an idea of the liberty-minded organizations working to erase the heavy hand of government so individuals can prosper and thrive. Giving Ventures is a new podcast designed to help donors and prospective donors discover new opportunities to change the world for the better. Twice a month, the Giving Ventures podcast highlights several nonprofit efforts, initiatives, and projects that leverage private philanthropy to solve public problems. Recently, uh, they were joined by J.P. DeGantz of Communio to discuss what he's doing to strengthen marriages across the country. Scott Hodge, president of the Tax Foundation, joined it uh, to talk about the economic implications of the Reconciliation Bill. And, and Nikki Niley, president of Parents Defending Education, told us what she's doing to help parents engage with their local school boards. The show is a product of Donors Trust, the oldest and largest donor-advised fund helping conservative and libertarian givers simplify, protect, and grow their giving. The team at Donors Trust regularly engages with the policy groups, student organizations, academic centers, and civil society nonprofits that endeavor to limit government, grow personal responsibility, and strengthen free enterprise. So if you care about the principles of liberty and if charitable giving is an important part of your life, Giving Ventures is the podcast for you. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and catch up on the latest by visiting www.donorstrust.org slash podcast. And we thank Donors Trust for sponsoring the Glop podcast. So uh, we only have a, a couple of minutes left. Uh, I'm going to say one thing, which is if some one more person tells me how great succession is and then I watch 10 minutes of succession, and I'm like, what is this crap? I am going to I'm going to throw something at the window. All it is is like five people saying, go F yourself, you effing F, and their brother and sister. Oh, yeah? Well, you should F yourself, you effing F. Oh, yeah? Well, F your mother. Your mother is my mother. Like that. That is basically succession as far as I can tell. Well, I have a completely different theory about it. I'm not a huge fan of it. I gave up on it like last year, and then my wife kind of convinced me to give another try. So, And the way I figured out how to enjoy it, um, is you have to realize that it's it's like no studio audience, totally deadpan, but basically it's a Will Ferrell, Adam McKay joint where mm -hmm. the dialogue like normally would be uh, like I was watching um, that what was that 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 figure skating movie that he did Blades of Steel Blades, Blades of Steel Blades of right? Glory right so like Blades of Glory at one. At one point, Will Ferrell said, you know, he takes out this brush that he really loves, and he says, no exaggeration. I could not love a human baby more than I love this brush. And because you know it's a comedy, it's kind of funny, right? Whatever. Right. Like, Succession is deadpan. A lot of the funniest dialogue in Succession is deadpan Will Ferrell-type dialogue done uh, in a supposedly serious context. And... It lets me like it more. It's sort of like why I didn't really okay. love the, that sh series that you guys loved, but the horrible people who go to the resort. Um, oh, the White Lotus. Yeah. yeah. It's, I, I, I need to say, okay, that's actually what they're doing. Is they're going for friend shaming, right? Great. Everyone's supposed to be ashamed and embarrassed for all of the characters, and they're saying horrible and terrible things as a way to make the audience sort of feel superior to everybody on the screen while also taking their stupid digs at, like, right-wing corporate media and media stuff in general. And uh, I'm not saying I, that makes me love the show, but it, it helps me get through it and enjoy it more. 
Oh, good. That's my heuristic. Okay. Hmm. I just, uh, I just uh, find it tiresome. I, 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 well, we I got to confess, it I find it tiresome. And, and I would be interesting if somebody made a show like that about, say, the New York Times dynasty. You know? Yeah. Yeah. You know. Uh, but I find, my, I find that if I wait long enough, I don't have to watch any of these things because <laughs> something else happens. Right. And I can just watch little clips and bits and pieces of them, and then I'm fine. Like I, I, I feel like I did. Well, I didn't see Dune. I did see. How can this be? He is the Quiznatch Hatteracks. And so, as I saw that, I feel like I. So saw you the, got you got the best of it. Okay, Rob, uh, is the martini shot back? Yeah, it's back. It's, it's back. back. Thank you for it's asking back, me. Baby. It's back. Uh, I won. I did a, a, a welcome. I got a couple others in the, uh, coming up this week. I did. I had a really interesting conversation with Preston Beckman, who was like the. Uh, the most amazing genius scheduler in television history um, and kind of gave us a lots of like uh, a must-see TV. He sort of was the, the, the uh, in many ways, the impresario of must-see TV um, and uh, lots of secrets. Really interesting stuff about the way media was, the way the media could be. And uh, Jonah, can the people see you peddling your, peddling your punditry wares? Uh, nowhere Pundity. and never. I'm nowhere. This, this is the last anyone is ever going to hear from me. So, just that's tragic. That is that is that is that is tragic because I just I spent three hours last week listening to you podcasting, and now you're yeah, saying well, they, it's over. They, I, they can they can listen to me, but they can read me at the Dispatcher and the L.A. Times. But I'm done. He's no, done. I, He's I don't done. know. I have, I have nothing exciting to announce. So. Okay, I really have nothing exciting to announce wow. except. Uh, Except to say that, um, you know, I'm there every day, Commentary Magazine, Daily Podcast. People seem to like it. I can't imagine listening to me as much as, uh, as much as, as much as the people seem to want to listen to me. <laughs> and in two weeks, in two weeks, the commentary roast of uh, yeah. Rabbi Mayor Soloveitchik, our first event in two years, obviously, since we had to cancel last year because of the pandemic. We're back. If you want to know about the roast, you can go to commentary.org slash roast21. To find out more, I hope that Jonah and Rob will be. Rob is going to be in Europe or something. Yeah, you know, he cannot stay in the United States. He cannot stay here. He yeah. must peripatetically venture the world yeah. like the wandering non Jew. The wandering <laughs> boy. I like not to call because he's trying to get away from family yeah. members he doesn't yeah. like. So that's an important <laughs> point. Okay. Yeah, that's right. I don't All know. Right. Well, you know what? We managed to get this in under an hour because you guys are uh, are busy. So uh, we did it, and uh, I hope you guys enjoyed it. And we will be back in a couple of weeks with another glop. Later.